1: Hey folks and welcome to Typology, the show on which we explore the story of you through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is Anthony Skinner, producer of the show. Thrilled to have you here. Want to remind you of a couple things. Don't forget about Ian's brand new workbook, The Story of You Workbook, that is the companion piece to his book, The Story of You. Hey, we've got another great show for you today. Our guest today competed in the Miss America pageant. She's a three time contestant on The Amazing Race. She is author of the brand new book Living Fully and host of the top rated podcast by the same name. And my favorite thing about her is she gets real. She gets real on this podcast. You're going to enjoy this. I'm talking about Mallory Irvin, Enneagram 3 with a two wing. Hey, and this girl can sing too. She ain't no joke. I know you're going to love this podcast, and you're going to love Mallory. That's it for me, Anthony Skinner. And now, here's the host of our show, Ian Cron, Mallory
2: Irvin, Enneagram 3 with a two-wing, author of the brand (laughs) new book, living fully dare to step into your most vibrant life welcome to typology
3: thank you so much and thank you for welcoming me into your beautiful home
2: thank you on a
3: beautiful street and i've just loved our conversation off the podcast so i can't even imagine how great this is gonna go
2: well, let's see where it goes. One never knows. All right. So tell us about your Enneagram journey before we leap into this amazing yes, book.
3: Yes. I love it that you love the Enneagram and loved it before it got really cool a couple of years ago, it seems like. So when everybody was kind of getting into these online Enneagram tests, I took it, and um, I actually took it like three or four times because sometimes I don't trust that those things I'm like if I answered this question I could have answered it two different ways so I took it several times and I always get a three wing two um so I um started reading into the threes and the threes with the wings and it was pretty spot on and two if you read into my book I know that three wing twos they can either be like they can be the, they are the authors and the helpers and the speakers. I think like Oprah and Tony Robbins and like all those types mm-hmm. of people are the good three wing twos, but the, the um, not bad three wing twos, but unhealthy, the unhealthy three wing twos are who I was at the beginning of the book, which is if I'm not achieving, like it cripples me mm. and it breaks me down. And I look for outside things to help me feel like I'm up and then I'm down. And, Right now, I feel like I'm rocking and rolling as a three-wing two. My husband, who's here, is also a three-wing two. And they say you don't want to marry your same Enneagram, but I need to ask a professional like you, is that okay that I've married him, or do I need to go in a different direction?
2: Well, as a psychotherapist, if you want to bring your husband over, we can work on some stuff together. But I'm going to have to turn on the meter. You know, just so get your checkbook out, okay? That's all I Uh want to say. I got it. All right, so look... Here's the deal with marriage and the Enneagram or partnership and the Enneagram. Any two numbers can do great together mm-hmm. to the degree that both of them are doing their own work, mm-hmm. growing in self-awareness and learning how to be self-reflective and learning how to face their shadow side mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, work it, work it out and integrate it into their own person, right?
3: Yes, makes sense, yeah. So
2: the only two numbers that have a harder time Getting it to work are two fours. Oh. And that's because fours um, are always looking for their perfect soulmate Mm -hmm. who will uh, complete them. Right. And so if two people are looking for the ideal soulmate in the other
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and looking to the other to complete them, they are going to run around in circles. in circles. And so I always say that two fours is six weeks of great sex and 20 years of massive <laughs> disappointment.
1: Unless you're, talking, unless you're talking about podcast marriage, in that case, Ian and I totally complete
3: each other's four. Are you fours? <laughs>
2: We're both fours. You're
3: both fours? Yes. So your podcast marriage is fine. What's your wife?
2: She is a nine.
3: A nine. The peacemaker. The, the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. Which would probably be a good match for a four, a healthy peace, peacemaker. Seems like it. Yes. I mean, the, the nice thing
2: about being married to a nine is they're very steady. Uh huh. And they're, they're, when they're healthy, they're really grounded. Okay. Um, when they're unhealthy, they, they don't like conflict and they uh-huh. become obsessed with their own inner peace <laughs> and keeping the peace, right? And all that stuff. Trust me, we've had bumpy years. Yeah. And that learning the Enneagram pulled us out, at that point in our life, pulled us out of a bad spiral. Really? Yeah, for sure. And that actually fed my passion about the Enneagram was what it did for my marriage. Really?
3: Mm-hmm. That's really powerful. too. knowing your background, like, you know therapy and all that other stuff, too. But the fact that the Enneagram was that powerful, I believe it, though. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. amazing. It was huge. Yeah. Yeah.
2: All right, so you're an achiever performer you you spoke a little bit about your early unhealthy period mm-hmm. right earlier mm-hmm. and uh, how it sounded like a three gone off the rails off the rails <laughs> so you know we know that the three's core motivation is a need to succeed mm-hmm. it's like a like a compulsive need to succeed mm-hmm. it's really important for them to appear successful to other people mm-hmm. right they want to be admired mm-hmm. the two wants to be appreciated yes but the three wants to be admired when they're unhealthy when they're not you know what i mean it's like and then they want to avoid failure at all costs
3: oh yeah at all costs including death in my (laughs) instance right um that is that you just described like the two versions of people that I am in this book Mm. and um achievement You know, I was born like the oldest of 23 first cousins that grew up on, it was basically like a compound in Kentucky. I feel like you would really vibe with it. We had a, um, we had like a garden in the middle. My grandparents lived in the middle. My dad's one of six siblings and they all are dispersed amongst like all these acres. We were like feral cats. Like when we were little, no rules. No, we were just country kids, this amazing childhood. But I was the oldest of all these kids that were like my siblings and of all my siblings. And so I think if you're born the first of your, you know, the children in your family, that's one thing. But to be born the first of these 23, like, cousins that we were so close, I was always seen as the leader. And then I started singing at, like, six at every funeral and wedding and county fair and festival and started doing these things when I was a young person. And they were just always so proud. My family was so supportive and loved everything that I was doing. But from a very young age... I was the one on stage. And then I was the one that was achieving, you know, I did all the things you can do as a young person, I was valedictorian, and you know, the things that you can do. And it was not crippling to me. In fact, maybe I was a healthy version of a three when I was younger. And it wasn't until I went to college. And then after college, I won Miss Kentucky. And um, I won Miss Kentucky on the final year, I was getting ready to age out. And when you said the thing about you have to ach- achieve at all costs. I remember that last year knowing this is my last shot to do this. Like I really wanted to do this. I wasn't really a pageant person, but I'd gotten thrown into this world. And then I was like, I'm obsessed with it and I have to win. And I had to win at all costs to the to the point that it made me crazy. And then um, I did win. And that was an amazing year. Like I did all these great things. A lot of people don't realize, but a pageant winner in certain states where the they like the pageants still, you it's a job. So I worked for the Department of Agriculture and I spoke sometimes to like seven schools in one day. I did all of these appearances and events all while training for Miss America. And it was a full time, full time, full time <laughs> job. It's one of the busiest that I've ever been in my life. And that's when I started to say, ooh. You know, I'm running out of energy. I need, I need something to help me along. I need a pep in my step. So, you know, I was taking a prescription an, an upper Adderall at the time, and um, that certainly helped. However, I did not need that medication. I was not prescribed because I had ADHD. I was prescribed because I wanted energy mm-hmm. and to keep going at the speed that I was going. Then eventually, I couldn't sleep. So. Then the Ambient came in. I um, did Miss America, and I was a runner-up shortly after I won Miss Kentucky. I walked off that stage to a reality TV show, The Amazing Race, where you're racing around the world in, like, less than 30 days, flying overnight to another country, doing these crazy challenges. I went with my dad. Uh, right out of that season, I was cast for an all-star season of that, film that show again. And all of that was within, like, eight months. And... I'm from a really small community also, so a close-knit family that was watching and proud and clapping. And so, so amazing. And then this community that I was like a superstar, you know, they Mm. made me feel like the most important person that when you Google my county that I grew up in, like my name comes up, Mm. not like somebody from 200 years ago. And they were so proud and it was so amazing. They'd always put me on a pedestal. However, when I came off of that, and here I am in my early 20s, and I was trying to think, like, what is the next thing that I can do that can top these things that I've done? And they were, they were big for me at 25. And s- slowly over the years, as I began to grasp and not reach the things that I thought were achievement for me or for the people on the outside, I spiraled out of control for about four years to the point where, I was taking so much of this medication. Every road was a dead end road for me. I felt like my soul and my spirit were gone. And all of that was the hunger to achieve Mm. and to achieve publicly. And I think I told you this off camera, but like I had a doctor look at me, Ian, and say, "Um, if you, I don't know what you're doing but if you keep doing what you're doing you're going to die. Mm. And I thought in the back of my mind I've had a good life and I've done all these great things and I would rather go out like this than let all these people know what's going on. I would have lost my life for that versus not achieving anymore or letting people in on you know the the thing that I thought would let people down. And um so that is kind of my journey into you know what I talk about in the book which is I landed in treatment, and it was I was there for almost six months of my life, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life um, because it changed the way that I think and the way that I am and the way that all of this stuff that had been building for years and years they took the shovel out and they started digging <laughs> and I did the most the most amazing work um, and it changed my life mm. yeah.
2: It's the, it's the ironic, paradoxical blessing of the crash. Yeah. Right? Is that, uh, and, and especially for threes, the th- what the, one of the things that threes hate is the possibility of being unmasked, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and nobody likes that, but it's really hard for the three because what the three fears is that there's no one behind the mask, that the only thing people value is, is the pass. is the pageant winner, mm-hmm. is the the you know the the influencer, the this, the that the surfaces. Yeah. The three things that the only thing that matters to others is my surface, and they assume that that's all. That actually the value is in the surface, not in the substance.
3: A hundred percent.
2: Right, and yes. so you know I can see where you know if if speed helps you uh taking speed helps you continue the game mm-hmm. then yeah you'll put your life at, at, at risk mm-hmm. right yes. and i mean it's crazy i mean i totally get it i mean i've been i was in treatment for you know a prescription drug addiction so mm-hmm. i i totally get mm-hmm. it for diff- but for different reasons mm-hmm. Um, all right, you're in treatment for six months, and we're going to get more and more. And mm-hmm. I think, that, you know, obviously this ties into Living Fully, yes. your new book, yes. Dare to Step Into Your Most Vibrant Life. And I love the fact that we're talking about failure first. Mm-hmm. Or not failure. Failure is not the right word. Uh, we're talking the about the human yeah. crash. Yes. Right, and the blessing of the crash. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, failure does frighten threes. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine in the beginning of this part of your journey, it felt like failure. Mm-hmm right, mm-hmm. uh, that you'd let people down, that they're not going to admire you anymore, that, you know, that, that you know, your hometowns are going to hear about this, mm-hmm. and, you know, the, the, everything's going to collapse. And, yeah. the, and, of course, the three is afraid, as I mentioned, that there's no one behind the mask. You go to treatment, and it sounds like you discover there is someone behind the mask.
3: I did, but it took some major work, and they knew exactly what they were doing with me. Mm-hmm. I went to a place called Karen Treatment Facility yes. in Pennsylvania, I ain't getting any money for saying that. We paid a lot of money to get to say that. I know, yes. <laughs> you know. So I went, and when I showed up, so I think it's part of too. Like I still had to have that mask on, and that I'm a good girl. So even though the amount of Adderall I was taking equals cocaine, I couldn't do cocaine. Like mm. that's a street drug. I can't. That's illegal. I don't do illegal things. And I was so il- I was so delusional at the at the end. So. Um, I lived in Nashville. My family lived in Kentucky and the catalyst to me getting into treatment was I was still doing the, ma- I was still putting on the mask and I was the MC of the, uh, dinner auction and the speaking places. I was starting though to unravel at the very mm-hmm. end and people could see it on the outside. Of course, you don't think anyone can see it, but they could. So I went home one weekend and I was MCing like an auction at a school that I went to, a Catholic school that I went to growing up. And apparently I was just like out of it. I showed up late. I was out of it, my parents were both there, and it was in my hometown in Kentucky, and they took me home and they took my keys away. And my mom said, "What is going on? Like, what is wrong with you?" And then she went through my bags, went through, my, got the medications out. She had known that I'd taken prescriptions, but they could just see on the outside something is wrong. And um, for two or three days we had never had anyone in our family in recovery or to go to treatment or anything. She just Googled things with my aunt, who was in the medical field. She Googled. They found the place that they were going to take me. And even my dad at the end was like, you can get through this on your own. I don't think you need to go either. And my mom was like, you have to go. So they took me. And you know, when you show up to the place, you don't say, hi, I'm an addict. Here's what I'm taking. Here's the milligrams. Here's the time of day I take it. You know, they have to take your blood and do the, you know, they got to screen you. So I went back there and as they were taking my blood, I said, are my parents still in the waiting room? Because as soon as you give them the results, they'll take me home. Cause they're going to see like, I don't do drugs. And they left while I was in the, in there. Cause they, you know, they knew that something was going on. And my mom says like, when she got in the car, she said, I feel so relieved that she's there. And my dad said, I feel like I'm abandoning my child. And it just like shows the, the delusion that I had. And then the, the difference in my 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 family's opinion of that but like I got there and I didn't even know I I needed to be there I didn't feel like I needed to be there I thought they would send me home and about a week and a half in as you start to as I didn't sleep for seven days um I was absolutely miserable and when you start to feel like that when you don't have something you realize okay there was a problem Mm -hmm. I was clearly dependent on this medication so about two weeks in when my my mind started to Come alive again, and I felt like joy, not chemically manufactured. And mm-hmm. I could sleep for the first night. I can still remember when I could sleep. I thought, okay, I did need to be here. I was in the right place, and I got to the end of the thirty-day um, program. And me being like a three and an achiever, I kept asking them if they would send me my computer because I was like, I'm going to write a book about this. You know? I know I'm, that is so three and crazy. <laughs> I said, I know we can't have phones or laptops, but I need my laptop. Yes. Because I'm going to write a book about this. You yeah. know, already trying to turn the crash into something of achievement for me. You know, I yeah. was two and a half weeks in. And make you good. Exactly. Yeah. And... They even appeased me a little bit. And we're like, we'll we'll ask, we'll reach out. You know, they never sent me my, they're not going to give me my laptop. And so at the end of the 30 day program, I think I'm shiny and new, you know, thank you mom and dad for sending me here. I feel so much better. I did need to be here. I feel like I'm going to speak on this one day and change a lot of lives and, you know, just delusions. And I sat there with my therapist and my parents at the end. And, you know, that's where they say, sober living or extended care, or you're free to go. And they said, we are recommending at least three more months for you. I mean, they let the, they let the heroin addicts leave. But they said, we, you're going to be here for about, we recommend this. And I was like, me? I'm fine. I was like fine before this. I want to be
2: magna cum laude here. It's, I want to be valedictorian
3: at this, I thing, valed- this treatment center. You know, my, my therapist was like, people are saying you're the happiest person to ever be in rehab. They were, they were saying I'm, the, I was the superstar there, you know, I was winning at rehab and, um, you know, there is a, a great thing about hopelessness. I didn't have anything to go home to my, my life was really at a dead end road and I, I was like, okay, fine. Let's see what you got. And when I went across the street, the first thing that they did, it's so like what you would do to a three. And I opened the whole book with this. I had had long blonde hair extensions for 10 years, and I'd never gone a day without them. And they sent me to the hair salon. They said, you are doing such a good job here. We're going to give you a pass. And you can get you know, your hair fixed, and, and you know, it's going to be great because you're doing so good. I went to this hair salon, and I think they were used to dealing with the people in the treatment program. They probably told them before, turn her chair around. Don't let her look in the mirror. Take her extensions out, you know, and don't let her see until the end. And when they they took the extensions out and my hair was like two inches long and they turned my chair around and I saw myself in the mirror, I had an out-of-body, I've never had an experience like this in my life, an out-of-body experience and I saw my life flash before my eyes. Mm. And it was the lowest low I have ever hit in my entire life when they took my hair out.
2: Because the mask was gone.
3: Because the mask was gone Mm. and I'd already gained like 20 pounds and I was, you know sober now so I'm realizing oh my gosh I'm here in treatment then they took my hair out (laughs) (laughs) I can deal with almost having a seizure but when they took that last extension out I was like oh no now I'm gonna do heroin like look what you've done to me you don't know what you're doing I see what you're trying to do with people here you're trying to make it to where nobody likes me where I'll never date anyone again so I don't have any problems that I could go off the deep end over like I say you I know you know what you're doing with some people but you don't know what you're doing with me, and I almost left. I packed my all my bags, and I brought them to the bottom. And I called my parents, and I almost left. Someone taught me how to believe in, and I stayed. And of course, that opened a wound that we did a lot of work on for like two months. So I'd been there for like three months here at this point, and I'm thinking the mask is gone. I'm doing great. I'm actually doing great now. They've really peeled it all back, and I'm feeling good. Because here I'm like, oh, I see what you were doing even with the hair. That was really good. We got to the bottom of this. We see why I was doing the pills, why I was drinking. Thank you. And then the vice president of the whole facility one day shows up in my therapy session. And we had this chapel service on Sunday, and I was the soloist. So I sang for the whole rehab facility. All the families that came in, people would say, she's Miss Kentucky, and she did TV. And I was the star of rehab. And he came in to my therapy session and I was like, well, hello, you know, what are you doing here? And he said, uh, you know, thanks for letting me join the therapy session today. Are you familiar with the mask exercise? And I said, yeah, the paper mache mask. I did it in the first week at the 30 day program and we did it here. Would you like to see my mask? You know, I have it on my wall, the token self-help activity. And he said, well, we're going to take it a step further and you will no longer be performing, um, at at Sunday uh, chapels, and I felt like a hot wash, like go through my body, and I was like, "You, ha- I've been here for three and a half months. I've done everything. I'm sober. I'm doing awesome. How are you going to take like a good thing away? How is sharing my talent something bad here at rehab now?" And I was so mad. And I went back, and all my friends were there, and they were like, "They told you you couldn't sing. I'm writing a letter." And there were ten of them. Wrote letters, and they said, "This helps us in our recovery." And this is, our families need this hope because we're here. And I mean, you try and get people to fight the fights for you, and they did not allow it. And for a long time, I wondered what in the world are they doing? But after like a few silent Sundays where I had to sit as a normal person, I did not feel. I felt average. I, I. I, nothing about me was special anymore. I was not the star of even the rehab facility. <laughs> and that was, that was the actual rock bottom for me. And I'm so grateful that I went to a place like that that really took it way further than the sobriety thing. Because, um, you know, I didn't even drink or do anything until my senior year of college. It was like I went hard and fast for five years or so. So the sobriety piece, it was something I had to peel that back. You know, I would have died. But there was something that had been brewing in me that was only brought to the surface because of the recovery piece Mm -hmm. that I got to work through that I don't think I would have ever had the opportunity to work through in my life. And they really knew what they were doing with me. And I look back on that experience in treatment, and people say, what, was, what were the biggest takeaways from treatment? I wouldn't even put sobriety in the top three, I would say. It was that attachment to the person that I was, to my appearance, to the person that people saw me as. Even though that, I knew at that point, like, that person almost killed me, but I still wanted to be her. Mm. And then it was just being seen as special and being seen as not like everyone else. Average was like the worst, regular, I couldn't be seen as that. That wasn't who I was. I had never been that person since I was born. But it taught me, it taught me so much. And it was, the, it was the biggest work I've ever done in my life and certainly the biggest work I did in treatment. Mm. That's why they kept me there so long. They had a lot to do with me.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, it's interesting uh, for me um, in my own personal journey, which is so similar to yours. Mm-hmm. When we were talking about that before we started recording. You know, uh, I can specifically remember that the moment when I realized just how much fear had been controlling my life, Yeah. how fundamentally afraid I was Mm -hmm. of life, uh, of who I was, of what life was about. What was it? You know, you talk about peeling back the layers and we got down to all this Mm -hmm. stuff what was like if you could find a word or a phrase like what was the trauma what was the fear it wasn't fear what was it that you would say this was the wound like can you just tell me what the wound was
3: absolutely the wound was fear of being average it was Mm. fear of being normal it was certainly a fear of not achieving, but not only achieving, but in a public facing way where mm-hmm. everyone else could see what I was doing. I would do anything to do that, to, to have the number one spot. And for a person that has issues with a mask, and titles, it's certainly probably not a good position to put a crown on their head and a banner (laughs) across their chest saying who they are with two rows of rhinestones on both sides. Mm -hmm. If you had any question about who I was, all you got to do is read (laughs) Miss Kentucky. I am the queen here. No one else can wear a crown. (laughs) Right. Royalty, you know? And... I think that year, while that year was so amazing, I never want to I want to make sure that like I wrote in the book the correct story because I wasn't out of control and like addicted and stuff during that year, but that year certainly fueled the fire for me. They say that during Miss America, it was a live telecast. You could walk out your onto your back porch in my hometown and you could hear people screaming across like six cornfields. Everyone, my whole life had cheered for me, had screamed my name, had sat in the front Row. And honestly, I think too, um, what was crippling to me at the end was that I felt like I'd been handed everything that I needed. I I didn't have any childhood trauma. I had parents who were still married, this amazing family. I had done all of these amazing things. I had an education, and I felt really guilty that I didn't crumble under the weight of something heavier. You know, Mm. when I went to treatment, And people would say, these are the things that happened to me when I was a child. I would think that, of course, you ended up here. But me, I just felt like you blew it. Like you, what a true failure you are because, like, they rolled the red carpet out for you. You started 10 steps ahead of everybody else, and, like, you still blew it. And I think that that's the reason that when that doctor looked at me and said that to me, I thought, well, I should probably go like this because I don't even deserve Hmm. a second chance because look what they gave me in the first one. Um, And so that's part of the other reason that I I had to write this book. I had to write it because I'm a public-facing person now, and I would say things like, you know, I have a podcast too, and I would say, I've been through hard times, you know, and I said that over and over, and I think that opens the cracks, the door open. But everybody says I've been through hard times. It's like, what is hard times? And I realized, you know, for eight years, I had people looking at my life, emulating, you know, the joy that I feel on the other side of this, this hard thing I went through. That's why I feel this joy today. And I wasn't telling them that story, and part of me probably wanted to stay like shiny and polished, even though I was very pro recovery and I knew it saved my life and I was sober. I still liked it that people saw me in the light that they did. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a long time to tell my story and write my story. And you know, there's HIPAA laws like nobody knew even my mom's side of the family didn't know I went to treatment. Not very many people knew even my, my close friends. I have close friends that read this book that say, You didn't, what? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You didn't, I didn't know that. And um, I think they're telling people your story, you know, telling them that you went through something is one thing, but like showing them, like giving them the details. I know there are so many people, whether it's an addiction or like something like that, that just feel despair and hopelessness and disdain and guilty that their lives ended up in a certain place that don't realize that like I felt like that because they see the other side and it's really hard to picture somebody on the other side of things in that place. And I said, I have, just, I have, to, I have to tell them about that part of my story. And I was like really nervous. I've been really nervous like as it's been coming out because you can't delete the Instagram post and forget mm-hmm. that it happened, it's, yep. it's out. And I had a friend uh, who did the forward to my book, Jamie Kern Lima, who's very smart and she said you know she said if you want to impress people you tell them your successes but if you want to impact people because I kept saying i want to impact tony then you tell them your failures and i was like oh,
0: yeah people now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so
2: um, the title of the book mm-hmm. living fully you've just described the journey of brokenness mm-hmm. right um, a journey of unmasking uh, a journey of having to face your own shadow mm-hmm. so for you now what does it mean to live fully
3: oh that's a great question um, because on the other side it certainly means a lot, something a lot different than it did. Mm-hmm. I used to think. I don't. I don't want people to confuse when they see the front of my book and they say, "Oh, was that the girl from here or here?" Living fully is going to be her story of Miss America and the Amazing Race. That was the. That was when I was like empty, running on empty. Mm. Living fully is certainly not this life full of all these things, especially for someone that was addicted to something like Adderall. You know, They're I, I like a full life, but it it tore me down mm-hmm. to nothing. So, on the other side of this, and I write the book to the person that I was in the beginning, but I write a lot of the book to the person that is the person that I am now. That life is is good. I have two kids, I'm running a business. But living fully is not accepting life as fun. If you say like things are fun, you know, I think so many people think right now in their lives that like If nothing is going wrong, that's a good life. Like the absence of bad is a qualifier for good. And I just do not believe that. I I think that a full life is one that you face your fears. You face adversity. You open door number two, even though door number one is your comfortable, familiar door. It is a much bigger life and a richer life and a deeper life. But it's a life that's much different than the one that I lived before. Uh, The one that I lived before... I needed to achieve at all costs. So if that meant taking the familiar path or doing the easy thing, as long as I was achieving, that was fine. But I know now from going through what I've gone through that when you face your fears and like when you live a different way, when you don't brush things under the rug, when, when you have tough conversations, when you like really dig in that like life is just, it's so much different. It's fulfillment, like it's true fulfillment that I never had felt before, even when things were going well. So um, living fully is a lot of things for me, but like, you know, uh, something that's really big right now and the reason that I wrote the book is I have this family that's very obsessed with legacy and like we had quarterly meetings every year since I was a child. All came together, all the cousins, they told the family stories, they told of the stories of adversity and like all of these things and really... Ask us as kids, like, what is your legacy right now? And we're like, what? We don't have to think about that for a long time. But that was the seed that was planted in me, and it's something that I do now. Because I think living fully is like living in, like, a legacy mode. It's thinking. It's making the decisions today based on, like, the legacy that I want, that I want to leave, how I want people to feel when I walk in a room, um, how I want to be as a parent and as a wife and as a business person. It's not waiting until the end of your life to think, like, what really matters to me? It's also, like, rebalancing your life all the time. I think with two little kids, I have a two and a three-year-old, imbalance can really get me. Uh, And I write about a lot of different things, so I'm, like, telling you all these things that Living Fully is now. But um, reprioritizing, like, what is really important to me? Okay, am I spending my time in that realm of life? Or am I spending it in something that's like fifth down the list? A lot of times it is. And when you get out of balance, like your life is not full. Your life is full, but it's not fulfilled.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: So living fully, I wrote, um, at different times in my life, living fully, it took like a breakthrough of some sort to get to fulfillment. In the beginning, you know, sobriety. But I have chapters on fear. Fear is a big one for me, really Mm -hmm. big. When you were talking about fear, like, I get that. Fear will, like, run rampant in my mind, and I will make a decision that I know is not the right decision just based on what I'm afraid of. You know, somebody should say, because
2: I have this this visual in my mind about Mm -hmm. fear that I work with, which is that... In my head, I see Homer Simpson with his hair on fire, <laughs> running in circles inside yes. my cranium, going ah, you know, just running in circles inside. That's fear. That's like my little yeah. like my little thing about fear. It's like Homer him. Simpson's hair on fire running around inside my head. And I have a uh, my sponsor. He's so great. He's so brilliant. I, I'd love for you to meet this guy. He I is would love fantastic. to meet him. Anyway, he um, and he's got this thick Southern drawl, and, <laughs> and he. he like, I, I called him once, and I, I said, I am so afraid to have this. Con- I don't want to have this conversation with a person, and I'm, I, don't, I don't like conflict, and it's going to mm-hmm. be intense. And he goes, well, what would you do? He goes, now, Ian, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Mm. And I said, well, I called him, and I'd have this conversation. And he goes, <laughs> and then he says to me, he goes, call me back in an hour. <laughs> let me know Let me know how it went. <laughs>
3: I and mean, then they hold you accountable. Yeah, but um, I love
2: the fact that the, and I've used this question so much now. I just, when people talk to me about stuff that's on their hearts, I go, well, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Mm-hmm. And they look at you like, whoa, like, and I'm like, well, then I think you have your answer. Mm-hmm. Like, go do what you would do if you weren't afraid, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. it's so powerful, like working with fear. Okay. So you have a, you have a chapter on fear. Mm-hmm. Now I want to talk about visioning. And manifesting.
3: Yes, I'm glad you want to talk about that. Let's go there. <laughs> I know you like woo woo things too. I
1: love woo woo things.
2: And we, we I love that about here. you.
3: Mm-hmm. I know. As soon as I walked into this garage and up the steps, I said, "Are you? Is that Palo Santos or incense? What you got? What you got burning up there?" <laughs> um, so I am one that very much believes. I'm. I am Christian and I am religious. We're, I was raised Catholic. We go to Catholic church every Sunday. I spent, you know, in those dark days of my life, I would spend hours and hours at that church lighting candles, praying that like God would take this away from me. I am very, um, I'm very religious and spiritual, and I've never understood why because I have been manifesting things and visualizing since I was like six. I didn't know what to call it then, but I've always envisioned things. There's a story in my book where I was six, I think it was six or eight, and I was in a talent show in my hometown, and all the other like six- and eight-year-olds were like begging for to play the games where you can win goldfish and like going to get cotton candy and stuff before they were going to perform. And I was sitting there on the couch, and I could see the box where the trophy was, the first-place trophy, and I would just look at it, and I would stare at it, and I would picture myself with it in my outfit that I had on. I would picture myself walking to my car with it, putting it on the shelf. And that was visualizing as a child. And I started doing that at a really young age, and I've always done that. And so when I could put a name to it, and I heard a lot of people talking about vision boards and manifesting and visualization, I was like, oh, I do that. I'm good at that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But then I would start talking about it in certain circles, extremely uh, a certain type of Christian circles, and they would say, well, that's not you can't believe in God because everything is from God. And I said, oh, I still believe everything's from God. Like, but it's, don't they say asking you shall receive? Like seek, seeking you will, find. I mean, that's asking, it's seeking. Putting things on a vision board, is that not an ask? It is simply a prayer and fast forward to me. And I think that God gave us the ability to envision really great things in our lives or have Homer Simpson in our head as a fear person. And unfortunately, I think that, people that are spiritual, that are Christian, and want to believe this too, they're like, well, I got to draw a line somewhere. And I just don't think that you do. So what's funny that you asked that question too, is I had that chapter together. I had the spiritual chapter and the hocus pocus chapter together. And my publishers were like, we got to split these chapters because these are two different things. And I kept saying, I think it is a holy thing that you can do. And they were like, I don't think we're ready for that, you know? Mm But I still do believe that, I mean, I believe that God wants us to, I, I, he loves the positive thinking. He wants good things to happen in our life. Like I, I I, just still, and I've heard the best arguments on it, do not see for the life of me how these two things are separate. Mm-hmm. And um, I very much believe in visualizing and manifesting and, I love vision boards. I do vision boards different now than I used to. I used to do it like a grocery list where I would say, I want this, put this on there. I want this and put very literal things on there. And now I know because it's so much the power of just like seeing the things that you want. And it can be metaphorical. I have a lot of like metaphors on there now, but that are very strong images. And also as a three and an achiever that wanted to fill my life jam packed full, I would have a poster board this big and everything was touching (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, there was no free space, but that's how my life was. And I had like, there's this, do you know Tara Swart? She's a neuroscientist Mm -hmm. turned like she was a psychiatrist for years and years. You've got to read the source. She's the first person who went from like a career in neuroscience to now she is like a, like woo woo. And talks about the correct ways to manifest and visualize based on scientific studies of the brain she said i was seeing this in psychiatry i was seeing this in neuroscience the the neuroplasticity the the ability of the brain to change when you think a certain way versus another way and people in my world like the scientific people were like you cannot talk about that that is embarrassing like you know we don't talk about that that is not real and she said this is i see this that this is real she wrote this amazing book but i very much believe that if you are a person who's counting it out because you feel like you need to count it out or because you're just like, there's no way that will work for me, you are leaving free magic on the table uh, and an opportunity to open up some amazing doors in your life. Like, amazing. And it's your own dang fault if you're not using it or utilizing it. In my
2: opinion, everybody, I'm talking to Mallory Irvin, author of the new book, Living Fully Dare to Step Into Your Most Vibrant Life. And you, you know, uh, Anthony, you know what I've loved most about this conversation? What? This is the story of a classic three. It, so is. it is a cr- is it? crazy classic story. And it's a story, too, that I love because, you know, it's the story of a three who crashes. Mm-hmm. Who uh, experiences what we, in, I'm sure what you felt in the beginning was quote unquote failure. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. But it turns out to be your salvation. Yeah. The crash yeah. becomes your
1: salvation. And what a gift to crash so early yeah. in your life.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and then to get to write a to write a book about the crash—that's an ultimate three goal, right? That, well,
2: <laughs> they saved my life, and it. then I
3: get to write the book. Like, put me on the list, you know?
2: But <laughs> you know what? Here's the thing about that: a self-aware three has the capacity to stand back and kind of giggle. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the it's the it's the ones that are not self-aware who don't see their own game that make me nervous. Mm-hmm.
3: That's right. I didn't see my own game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In the beginning. Right. But when I look back on it now and I think of like what I, it it is funny. There are funny parts in my book. Mm -hmm. I was a crazy person. And like, I just wanted them to see me as, I still wanted to be the queen. You know, they, when they took my crown and banner away, I thought, well, what, what can I, you know, then I put the backpack on, did the amazing race help the clue? Like I got to be on TV for something else. And then when I didn't have anything to hold in front of me anymore, well shoot.
2: <laughs> it's the best thing that can happen to a three. It was the
3: best thing. You
2: know, I think there are best things that can happen to every single Enneagram type. Mm-hmm. But really when all of us get dare I use the word exposed mm-hmm. in our type for what's really going on, mm-hmm. then is the beginning of healing. That's yeah. the beginning of life. Mm-hmm. All right, everybody, I want you to go get Mallory's book, Living Fully, Dare to Step Into Your Most Vibrant
3: Life. Mallory, thank you for being with us. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. I heard really great things about you, but you are above and beyond the hype even. And I heard a lot of hype about Mm. just the person that you are. So um, I could hang out with you like all day. So this was really great. You too, Anthony. thank you for being here. Of course.
2: How do people find out about you?
3: So, um... We live a lot on Instagram, so Mallory Irvin, just M-A-L-L-O-R-Y-E-R-V-I-N. Or you can find me, just MalloryIrvin.com. We do everything. So I have a YouTube channel, a podcast, I have merchandise, I have a book. I do everything on the internet that's, like, not sketchy, basically. So however you want to. (laughs) (laughs) However you want to consume. yeah. (laughs) Kyle's, yeah. He's like, you know, if it all crashes and burns, there's always OnlyFans. And I'm like, okay, perfect. So. I um, yeah. However you like to watch or consume content, we we do it. So um, you can find everything there.
2: Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks. We're gonna have you back on once this book takes off. We want to hear about the journey of integrating that experience into your life. And uh, Anthony. Yes. Good day today, wasn't it? Oh man. Back to
1: back to back.
2: <laughs> back to back to back. Good man. Good. This was a good one to end on, yeah. right? Typology tribe, my family, my friends, my community, may you have love, may you have joy, may you have peace, may you have healing, and may you have rest. Until next time.